um, thank you, Tom, for agreeing to be our first guest. I'm super excited to uh, learn about your story. So uh, my name is Bronze, and um, basically, I like for the for the work that I do, I basically help to support um, startup community events in Greater China. But at the same time, I'm also very um, passionate about just about the topic of like how do people actually find out what they wanted to do and what are the steps. That they take in order to get to where they are today, because I feel like there's so many like students、um, that I saw. They're just like they're studying and then they they graduated, but they're not necessarily sure like what should the step that they should be taking or what they should be doing. So we hope to discover and discuss about that today. So、um, to start with,、um, Tom, would you like to just share a little bit about like what you're doing? Um, in start some good and also like what actually inspired you to start this、um, company? Yeah, for sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to participate in conversations like this, and、uh, particularly one of my one of my one of my real passions and and great joys is always talking to people at the early part of their entrepreneurial journey, and hopefully a few of the things I might have to say tonight might be helpful in some way in those、uh, in those early steps. Um, for me, the inspiration to so there's a few things you know that went into the founding of Start Some Good. I'd previously founded three not-for-profits and two social enterprises, so everything I've ever done has been focused on on social impact.、Um, and so I spent my twenties kind of building an organisation called Vibewire in Australia that was using technology in innovative ways to engage young people more fully in democracy.、Um, and it was really hard to raise money <laughs> for that for that organisation. You know, it was we, we were doing stuff that was really new at the time.、Uh, we we had no track record of having successfully done those sorts of projects. No one had a track record of doing those sorts of things. We we did things like you know,、uh, we're hosting. This is kind of like a virtual summit right now. We're we're hosting our big virtual summit. Starts and good that is is hosting our big annual virtual summit next week. We held kind of like a proto virtual summit in in two thousand and one. We we launched a youth culture portal in 2000. We opened the first co-working space in Australia、uh, in 2006.、Um, so so the fundraising process was challenging because the social sector is not very good at supporting innovation because there's a lot of fear about、uh, funding things that don't work、um, and there's a, there's a fundamental conservatism that comes from a good place. You know the people who have the privilege to have resources that are dedicated for social benefit. Whether those are foundations or impact investors or governments, I know from my experience they almost all take that very seriously. They're trying to do the most good they can, but what the most good they can ends up meaning a lot of the time is the most good that they can feel, you know, very confident is going to happen. So there just isn't much of an appetite for risk. And so, through the eight eight and a half years that I was working on Bywire, which is still around today now, just turned twenty, which kind of blows my mind.、Um, I, we kind of evolved into a social enterprise. I wasn't really familiar with the model. I hadn't, you know, it wasn't kind of a big part of the conversation back then. It was just through sheer necessity of having to figure out ways of funding the things we wanted to do that we realised that, you know, while we could get some grants, it was never enough, and we had to significantly supplement that with earned revenue of various sorts. So that's what kind of began to get me into the social enterprise. Sector, but what really catalyzed, I guess, the thinking around starts and good was when a few years later I lived in San Francisco for two years, and I worked for a social innovation lab in Silicon Valley called Hope Lab.、Um, but it wasn't the Hope Lab experience per se that kind of inspired starts and good. It was more just the whole ecosystem of the Bay Area, 
and feeling like for the first time in my life, I kind of knew what a pro innovation ecosystem looked like. And what it actually looks like is a lot of failure. You know, from the outside, I think people have very kind of mythic ideas of what the, you know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco are like, that it's just super smart people doing clever things. And it's actually like, a, you know, filled with the, you know, the biggest collection of terrible ideas you've ever come across in your whole life. But to some extent, that's what an innovation ecosystem looks like. It looks like trying lots of things. It looks like lots of stuff that doesn't seem sensible, that doesn't seem likely to work, that in fact won't work. And what powers that in the Bay Area and in most startup sectors around the world is the work of angel investors. Um, and so I'm sure you guys are all studying entrepreneurship, you understand there's kind of two main categories of investors, very broadly speaking. I mean, there's all sorts of others, there's, you know, philanthropy and government, but in terms of private investors, private um, equity investment in, in startups, angel investors go tend to go first. They invest at a very early stage with very little evidence often, and they can do that because they're investing their own money. And so you can invest your money whenever you like. You can, you know, you can be as, as, as risky as you want to be. You can be as uh, idiosyncratic as you want to be. And then as startups progress a little bit further, they'll then start raising money from venture capitalists. Venture capitalists are investing other people's money. And therefore they have to justify their decisions. They have to, they have to make decisions that seem sensible, that can be justified. And so they, and they need to bat a much higher success rate than the average angel. And so they make decisions based on data. You know, they look at the actual, they don't just like listen to a, a fancy pitch. They really want to see the, what's the evidence. What's your cost per customer acquisition? What's the lifetime value data. But the only reason they're able to make those decisions based on data is that that data has mostly been collected thanks to the investment of the angel investors, but enabled essentially, they essentially funded the experiment and then VCs fund successful experiments. And what I realized, in, you know, through that time there is that in the social sector, the area that I care most about, building companies or organizations to make a difference in the world, that it's like a sector that's filled with all VCs or VC equivalents and no angels. That the funders tend to be governments or corporates, you know, big companies or foundations. And they're almost always spending someone else's money. And they want, and they need to do so in a way that can be justified and that seems sensible. And so they want to make those decisions based on data. The problem for social innovation is that we don't really have anyone or, or far too few people playing the angel role, funding the experiments. And so that's where we thought we need to find new ways of helping fund early stage and innovative ideas for social impact. And we looked around and thought, what's, you know, what's doing a good job of supporting stuff that is new, that is innovative, that is different, that is unproven. And I got really interested in the role that crowdfunding was playing in the creative arts, supporting emerging artists and musicians and inventors and all sorts. And a light bulb went off for us that that's the kind of mechanism that we need for social change as well, not that we need to kind of take what we've learned supporting creative entrepreneurs and teach social entrepreneurs how to do that as well. And so that's why we launched the original Starts and Good platform nine years ago. Now, wow. since then we've evolved enormously and we do a lot more than just crowdfunding now. Crowdfunding is only about 15% of our revenue. The majority of what we do is teaching people how to crowdfund. In a way, teaching people how to tell their story, how to design you know, theories of change and business models, how to, how to pitch to the right people in the right way to raise the funds that you need. And so we run, we run a number of accelerators each year or pre-accelerator programs and capacity building programs for everyone from Asian charity services in Hong Kong to the United Nations Development Program in the Pacific to a number of leading companies uh, here in Australia. So that was a really long answer. 
Wow, that's an amazing story. And you and you mentioned about you got the idea of starting the nonprofit, the Vibe Wire, back、mm-hmm. in when you were in your twenties. Like, what? How how do you know you wanted to start? Like, what got you even begin to interested in social impact, like in this area where you wanted to like help help people、yeah. in this area? I think I was nineteen actually. I was I was at university, maybe maybe second year.、Um, I mean, I've always been well, not always, but like almost as long as I can remember, I've been interested in you know, social impact.、Uh, I was, you know, brought up in a, a relatively politically engaged family,、um, and certainly a very purpose-driven family. I was very fortunate, I think, to have two parents that did very purpose-driven work.、Uh, both public servants; they weren't they weren't entrepreneurs,、uh, but my dad was a town planner, working for the the the, the town, the head town planner of the town I grew up in. Uh, and my mum worked for the ABC, which is the the government-owned、uh, media organisation, and they were both very kind of purposeful in, in in why they did what they did. My dad really believes in and, and is very passionate about the role town planning plays in you know building spaces where people can come together and affecting the kind of di- you know the dynamic and the quality of life for an urban population. And my mum's very passionate about the role the public broadcaster plays in a democracy and the importance of you know using. Public-owned media to share diverse voices and you know empower citizens,、um, and so I think I kind of I, I think I was really lucky because I grew up with, in some ways, that was my model of what work looked like. That that work wasn't something you know I, I kind of work wasn't something where you do it because you have to, and then you find your real sense of kind of purpose and pleasure outside of work. I had these role models where those two things were were kind of interconnected, and so that kind of was my mental model of. That's what work should kind of look and feel like. Whatever it was, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was looking for that kind of feeling, that kind of sense of making a difference. And and I was very fortunate that I kind of stumbled into, I think, my my personal mission or sense of purpose at quite an early age, well, a, a few years before when I started Vibewire when I was 16 actually, and I was in in the U.S. on exchange for a year, and I was through you know a series of kind of very fortunate circumstances that are probably too. Too long-winded to explain right now. I found myself at this incredible conference in San Francisco, and the only reason I got to be there was that I happened to be an Australian on on the year program with a particular exchange organisation, student exchange organisation, in America at the right time to somehow be invited to attend this event. And it really, it really changed my life. You know, meeting these incredible global leaders. I met, I met, I met a couple of different Nobel Peace Prize winners. Um, I met Mikhail Gorbachev randomly enough. Like just these kind of world leaders and these very, you know, very、um, high impact, very passionate, very driven people, including the other young people, mostly. That that walking away from that, I had a really strong sense that I had to I had to kind of do something that made a difference. But it was actually kind of reflecting back on that experience and actually realizing the kind of shortcomings of that experience that really gave me my sense of direction. Because as I thought more about the experience I just had, which was deeply empowering for me. I realised that what I've just experienced is kind of how youth empowerment tends to happen, which is that it's very, it's kind of tokenistic, it's haphazard. Like it was so random. I was there. It wasn't like some meritocratic process because I was the most deserving Australian to get to go to this thing.、Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very biased towards wealth. I realised that they had 32 young people from 29 countries there as the kind of youth delegation inside this much bigger, you know, event filled with much more important people.、Um, and they, as I said, they'd kind of Cherry picked us all from a student exchange program, 
And so we had this surface diversity, you know, we were boys and girls, we were first world, you know, the developed world and developing world, we were all different skin colors. But I realized that every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us to America for a year. Um, and it got, it, it got me thinking a lot about how do, you, how do you make the experience that I just had, this experience of kind of meeting and engaging with incredible people, the experience of having the chance to tell my own story and feel like my voice mattered. How do you give that experience, not just this kind of rare kind of niche of young people, but to all young people? Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's what led me to found the, my first not-for-profit, which was a, a high school student organization in Sydney. And then that, that ultimately led on to a, a university student organization, which led on to launching Vibewire, too, because I was interested in, in leveraging technology and the internet and media. Uh, my, my fascination was really media more so than, than technology. But what was interesting was having a, a type of media, thanks to technology, which is both ma massive reach and low cost, and that had never before existed in human history. Um, and that ultimately has led me to start, start some good, which is to help, you know, help people like me 15 years ago, trying to get a new idea off the ground and, and not having a lot of access to traditional financing or traditional philanthropy or traditional investment and needing to build a community of supporters in order to do that. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And it's interesting to see like how one event actually could be like changing the course of your life. And, and you mentioned about like um, in in that like when you were 16 you came across your mission like mm -hmm. what was what was what was that like was like were you having like a statement of that is what you wanted to do that you feel like you have your mission and like how was it and like did it change uh, across the year like I know that you're always in the social impact sector but did the statement or the mission statement actually changed not really, interestingly. I mean, it does for a lot of people. Everything I've ever done has been about building a better democracy or a more democratic society. And and and, and what I mean by that is is not I'm not really focused on elections specifically. I'm focused on participation and how people are able to be involved in their community in a way that makes a difference and how communities are able to come together to create the kind of future that they want. And that to me is true democracy because democracy is having been able to have an impact on the future. Um, and so you know, with, with, with those early kind of organizations, I was very focused on young people. I thought, I thought kind of participation was a unique challenge for young people and, and you know, there are elements of that. And perhaps it's very convenient that as I got older, I began to think that maybe it's not a, a uniquely uh, youth issue. It's kind of more systemic and, and broader than that. And, and my, whole, my whole kind of, I guess, my, my angle on crowdfunding and why I'm really passionate about crowdfunding is because I see it in, in, that, in that context that crowdfunding is a set of, is, is kind of democratizing fundraising. It's a, it's a set of shared infrastructure that enables people to come together to create the future that they want for their community in a collective way. And so, and so I've kind of pursued that goal in, in a lot of different ways, I feel like. I've, you know, I've done kind of communities and, and student associations. I've um, been, you know, very interested in media. I've run a film festival that toured around the country in, in cinemas and published magazines and anthologies. I'm interested in events, conferences, and now, you know, we do a lot of work with online events. Um, and I'm interested in how you help people. You know, ultimately, I'm interested, though, in how you help people, I guess, make a difference. And, and I guess my particular interest is, is that I'm really fascinated by the infrastructure for change making. What are the different tools and, and kind of shared, you know, shared infrastructure, whether that's platforms or physical spaces, um, or cultural assets that enable us to kind of more effectively come together to make a difference. 
Um, and that's, you know, that was the kind of thinking that made me want to open a co-working space back before there were any in Australia so that people could, you know, collectively come together, share resources, make things happen. It's the same, the same thing that makes me really, you know, kind of really passionate about and excited about crowdfunding and the role that it can play. And, um, like, were you, because I saw that you also were dropping all of different... I, I saw you... I saw you also involved in a lot of like different role like you mentioned about like you like about advertisement and I saw you also did like project management this sort of things like were, were you doing the non running the non-profit parallel to those um, different work that you were doing or was it was it how, how was it yeah I mean it always you know I've always kind of started things in a very bootstrap kind of way uh, you know by why we started with a bunch of friends at university it took several years before we were able to really pay ourselves very much for that. So, you know, had all sorts of other jobs, you know, not, not great jobs, university student um, kind of jobs that I was juggling at the time, sometimes good jobs, but often not. Um, but my real passion there was, you know, the work I was doing for the organization. And, and within about three years, it was my primary source of income. And within maybe four years, it was my only source of income. And then it was my only source of income for about five years after that. Um, Starting Good was similar. I mean, I, you know, I, I I co-founded it with, a, with someone I'd, I'd met working in an organization called Ashoka in Washington, D.C., but I'd moved to San Francisco by the time that Al, you know, kind of Alex and I got talking about this, and I didn't have a lot of flexibility. I was on a sponsored working visa to be in the U.S., so it was kind of a bit binary. Either I worked full-time and could be in San Francisco and could stay, or I had to quit my job and move home. I couldn't, like, just go to three days a week or pick up a part-time job or, you know, do a bit of consulting or whatever. I was... I was, I was kind of, you know, stapled to my sponsor in that respect. So for about the first year of Start Some Good, I, I did juggle it uh, with a with a full time job, and essentially kind of did what did my best to run the organisation from the from the train uh, as I commuted up and down to Silicon Valley, and then was doing phone calls or running webinars in my lunch break. I mean, it was kind of it was kind of mad and difficult, um, and probably made me, you know, not as effective as I would have been at that other job, which caused some tensions as well. It's clear that my heart and my mind was a little bit somewhere else. Um, but during that during that time, my co-founder Alex was, was kind of full-time from day one. Um, and I kind of think someone has to be. I mean, it's it, it's tricky. I, I think you don't want to jump into things too early, but if, if, no one, if, if it's no one's main thing, it's hard to make um, significant progress in my experience. And like, could you sh also share like how was your thinking process like did you like graduated and then you start like a couple of non-profit like do you already planned it out from the beginning or were you just kind of new all right I, 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 or you just ha suddenly have an idea oh I wanted to start that because I saw that problem and I wanted to solve like how was yeah, that? Yeah I'm not a big planner to be honest I'm like just I'm just not someone who like looks all that far ahead by nature you know I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do at university until it was time to write down what it was until it was time to start selecting you know until I had to um, and then I chose uh, I did a Bachelor of Arts so I did political science and history because my, my interest is in people and change making and so on and um, but right through university I was just throwing myself into projects and you know publishing the first full-time job I ever got funnily enough was um, for a, I took a year off uni at this point, I was a bit burnt out. I, 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 my, my, my degree took a lot longer than it should have. Um, I went part-time university, I had too much else on um, to keep up with the university, so it took me five years in the end to do my three-year degree. Um, and, but part of that was I took a whole year off because um, I just decided to go get a job and you know, do, do that for a little while. 
Um, and the job I got was in a magazine publisher. And the only reason I was able to get that job, I was selling ads in a couple of magazines. I was an advertising manager. And the reason I got that job was because I published a zine at, the, at university. I published my own magazine at university and sold ads to dot-com startups as a way of, you know, as a way of them getting on campus to a certain extent. Um, because we were, uh, you know, a, a, a student body allowed to distribute our stuff on, on campus. And so I I just kind of off my own bat started calling people and selling ads and, and published this magazine. And so then, then I just went for a job and, you know, was able to get that job based on it. I think that's kind of been the story of my life for a lot of things. I just, I just start doing things, I try things, and then hopefully I rapidly acquire enough skills and or confidence to kind of get someone to start paying me um, to do that kind of thing. And it's never really been about my degree as such. You know, you don't, there aren't many, there aren't many jobs that are like super specifically just for like political science and philosophy graduates, it's kind of about what you do. Uh, and so university for me was like my degree, my degree was important to me. I enjoyed it and I'm, I'm glad I got it. And it's, you know, but it was, it was not really about the degree. It was about the time I had is the way I, I felt about university kind of that, that, that those, those five years or the four years of the five years I was on campus and the, the chance that gave me to meet so many people to, to learn from so many different perspectives and to kind of have that safe environment to just do stuff to just, you know, when you're a student, you can justify spending a lot of time publishing a zine or putting on a concert or holding a film screening or all those sorts of things so that was a yeah that was a important space and, and time for me but yeah i didn't but i had no idea what i wanted to do that whole time it kind of to my to my surprise one of those things i was just i just started doing turned into something that not immediately but that could start you know where we could start bringing enough money to actually pay me and then even when we moved to the us you know when i left Fivewire in 2008 and moved to the us i just had this vague idea that it would be I wanted to work in America for a while because it seemed like they were just a bit ahead, you know, in terms of what I was really interested in, which is the strategic use of technology for social change. It felt like America was a bit ahead of where we were in Australia and I wanted to experience that. But I knew hardly anything about what was involved in moving to America when I moved to America. I hadn't lined up a sponsor. I didn't even, I wasn't fully on top of what was involved. I somehow convinced my girlfriend, now wife, to quit a job she loved and come on me, come with me on this kind of fairly harebrained plan. Um, but yeah, not a big planner. I just throw myself into things, started meeting, you know, rocked up, started meeting people, started trying to find out what was going on and who might be looking for someone. And once again, you know, before too long, was able to find a really good fit for me that was willing to kind of go through the sponsorship process. And that was with an organization called Ashoka, um, who were really one of the pioneers around social entrepreneurship. So it was a really good landing place for me and I, I learned a lot. But yeah, it starts some good. I couldn't have been less interested in starting a company. I just moved to San Francisco. I'd been there like six weeks. I barely settled in. I was living on, my, my wife and I were living on an air mattress in, a, in an apartment. You know, we hadn't had time to buy furniture. I was working for a startup. I was, I was you know, I, f I felt like I was, had more than enough on in my life. So when, when Alex called me with this kind of idea and this pitch, I said, no way. No, I'm not, I'm not the slightest bit interested, Alex. I've just got here. I'm busy. I'm, I want to make friends. I want to party. And he said, well, how about you just be in a, you know, would you just be an advisor? I'm like, yeah, sure, Alex, no worries. But then two weeks later, I was just, it was all I was thinking about. Um, and so I had to throw myself into it. But yeah, nothing I've ever done has really been a, a well thought out plan, to be honest. I just kind of throw myself into things and sometimes they're complete disasters and sometimes they work out and I do that thing for 10 years. An interesting story that you have. I think like even though you said that you didn't really intentionally plan that out, but it sounded that because of the studies that you have in university, you're interested in art, in history, and then later on you went to the event, you found your mission that you want to make an 
impact in the social impact sector, which leads to all the different non-profit things that you started eventually to start some good. And um, you know, like that you mentioned about, you just jump in, and then you discover if that is actually a good fit for you. So, um, like. Um, like seeing you starting start some good for like so many years and being entrepreneur for so many years, like, um, and you've acquired a lot of different skills along the way. Like, what would you say is the most important skills um, that you need or or you have in order to um, bring the company or grow to the company to where it is today? I actually think my most important skill is resilience. That I'm 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 kind of. I'm able to stick with things for a long time. I don't burn out. I don't get discouraged easily. Um, I'm I'm good at working hard, but I'm also good at switching off. You know, and I'm I, I think I learned quite early to kind of have a few, you know, kind of some slightly separate worlds in my life. And that, despite the fact that I work really hard, I could then step away and be in another world with a different group of friends for a while, or, or go to a music festival. Or not right now, but you know, something I've historically enjoyed. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's really crucial. It's really become my, my, my belief over the years that the number one reason that startups fail is because the founders burn out. That, that, that a lot of it's just a game of staying alive long enough for things to start clicking together, to try enough things, to stick with it for long enough, to, to watch the people who are less committed begin to fall by the wayside or who are just into it because startups are the you know fad of the moment. Um, and that after a certain period of time, things just begin to come together a little bit more. Um, and so I think that's definitely my my number one skill is just plugging away. I don't think I have any particular genius for any other piece of it, but if you plug away for long enough, you actually get somewhere. So th- this part is more of like the soft skill part or internal, but uh, oh, like... but it's actually quite hard. You know, <laughs> yeah, it is a soft skill, but it's the hardest soft skill mm-hmm. um, because it's you know. Um, <clears throat> Because it speaks to you know who you are, your expectations for yourself, your the story you tell yourself, your you know your confidence versus anxieties, um, and it's you know it's it's why a lot of a lot of founders really struggle um, with mental health. So yeah, it, it is it is what we call a soft skill, but let's not confuse that for something that is easy or unimportant. Right. Like so, if you would have share like some of the tips of how do you actually build that or where do you where did you even understand that you actually need this in order to sustain yourself to not burn out or to um support yourself for a long period of time like what would that be like how did you build that and once again it's not that i don't think i recognized that i needed it and then set about kind of trying to make myself resilient i just kind of over time uh learned i guess a few a few key techniques that work for me and I think for you know it's a little bit different for everyone you know for some people it's you know uh getting up at 5 a.m and doing exercise is really important that's not that's not so much my thing um uh, but a few other things that are really important um to me one is the ability to step away um that's easier said than done I mean I think a lot, I think a lot of people worry about things but one of my also beliefs is that often we often when you're like bashing away at something and it's not working and you're getting frustrated what you need is not more work, but you need a new way of thinking about the problem. And that new way of thinking almost never comes when you're there beating your head on the problem. It comes when you go for a walk and are willing to like, you know, let your mind wander for a while. So there's this kind of negative feedback loop. I feel like when you get, when people get stressed and they're, you know, behind where they want to be and the work is piling up and they feel like they can't take a break because I haven't got a chance to take a break. They're just working, working, working. But actually what they most need is a break. They need, they need a new way of approaching 
their stuff. And, and so innovation only comes from, you know, what, what a lot of people need, what the world needs indeed, I think, is not just kind of more, not more work, not just not just more of the things that are already proven to work. We need, we need breakthroughs, we need new ways of thinking. And so there's a real, you know, I think there's this funny trick for entrepreneurship that it, you, you do often speed up by letting yourself slow down in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But that, you know, that involves then confidence to do that. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big kind of, you know, the, I don't know if you call like getting things done methodology. It's a bit old school now. I think I read that when I was at university. But this idea that you never carry anything in your head, it drives my wife a little bit crazy. But I refuse to remember anything. I refuse to try and remember anything. You know, if there's, if there's something that's on, it needs to be in my calendar. If there's something I have to do, it needs to be in my to-do list. And provide, so I obsessively like record things, you know, I like, dress, my wife is like, you can't expect me to turn up to anything if you haven't put it in that shared calendar. <laughs> you know, because like, I just, I, I, I'm not placing any of those expectations on my own brain to keep track of like what I said yes to and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so the G, the GSC, the getting the, the GTS, or getting things done, GTD, is, is all about trying to get things out of your head yeah, and just constantly processing. So I do that a little bit obsessively, but it helps me, it then helps me relax. You know, I can have, I have one of the, you know, you have an idea at night or whatever, and I don't sit in bed worrying about it. I just kind of write it down, whack it into my ideas list on my phone and then go back to sleep um, pretty promptly. Right. So that's a big one for me. Got it. I, I love the GST method as well, like the getting things done method. And, um, and um, I think Sorry, I keep saying GSD because inside our company we call our to-do list getting done. Ah, uh. getting for the word that starts with S. Don't know, don't know what the <laughs> what the rating is for the recording and so on. And so it's rewired my brain. So getting things done. It's getting so sorry. I kept saying the wrong, yeah, just, confusing just, acronym. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Just just in case people don't understand, like what 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 is the method that you're talking about? It's actually yeah. from uh, from is it David Allen? David Allen, that's it. I yeah. said Paul Allen, but he's the Microsoft yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. so I think I'll ask you the last question and then um, to see, and then uh, the remaining 10, 15 minutes, we can see if there's anybody wants to ask. Um, so just just wanted to ask, like, if, like, what, what advice would you give for a student who is, for example, they are in this period of time, they are, they, they have a lot more free time and then they're maybe about to graduate, they're not exactly sure what they should be doing. So what would you suggest them to like spend this period of time to better improve themselves or even find their passion or, or mission? Like what, what, what advice would you have for them? I mean, I, I'm a big believer that, I'm a big believer in general with entrepreneurs solving problems they've experienced. Um, and I think that if you are trying to work on a problem that you yourself don't directly experience, which is also important, I don't want to dismiss that because that's the root of empathy and that's helping others, you know, and that you don't have to necessarily suffer, excuse me, suffer from a condition to want to devote your energies to improving it. But I think that if that is you, you have to really apprentice yourself to the, the problem. Um, one of my, I can't remember who said this, but it's an idea that I really like in entrepreneurship that you should be in love with the problem and not, the, not your solution. Whatever you think your solution is, is probably wrong and is probably going to need a whole lot of revision along the way. So you have to be in love with the problem to really stick with that. And so, if, you know, like for me, and you know, I'm in love with the problem of how do we get more people involved in making a difference, so to speak, or I would call it the opportunity, but you know, I, I'm in love with that. And then, and, and then, and that's led me to do a million different things, you know, film festivals, events, co-working spaces, crowdfunding platforms, accelerators, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, as I continue to kind of work away at that particular problem and, and continue to be fascinated by it and continue to kind of try and make a difference in that area. And 
And so I don't, I don't know how you necessarily just create that, but I think it's an important thing to recognize in yourself. Because I think it's easy sometimes for people get, to get kind of really captivated by the first, a particular idea for a solution they've had. And that's often, in my experience, you know, that the, the can be kind of a little bit superficial, can be a little bit naive around the situation, particularly if they haven't spent that time really understanding and, and listening. So it could be a really, it could be a, it could be a powerful time to spend listening. You know, if, you, if someone has an interest in a particular topic and doesn't doesn't feel expert enough in it, doesn't have kind of the idea yet, that's fine because it's totally fine to be an exploratory listening and learning phase. And I think one of the amazing things, one of the really interesting byproducts of the moment we're in right now with COVID, is that while you know a lot of classes are cancelled and there's a lot of disruption locally, it means that a huge amount of stuff's going online. And so suddenly, so while our local events are in many ways cancelled, we all have access to each other's events all around the world all of a sudden, which can feel a little bit overwhelming. There's suddenly, you know, every event is available to everyone because they're almost all online now. But that's also kind of an incredible smorgasbord of ideas and inspiration and learning. A lot of it very low cost right now. A lot of people, I think, are putting stuff online or creating online events, just as you guys have done, because you just, you know, because you've recognized that there's a need right now. It's not about you're not charging for it, I don't think, and you're not, and that's a lot of stuff right now. I think there's a lot of, I feel like in some ways the response to COVID globally has been quite inspiring. You know, I think a lot of people worried early on that, that things, you know, situations like this can make people fearful and therefore selfish, worrying only about themselves and only about their family. And it looks like, it looks very much to me like the opposite has happened, which is incredibly inspiring. So many people are, are, are trying to think about how they can actually connect with the community around them, even if they're stuck at their own home in their own home and how they can kind of offer something so it's a, it's a wonderful moment to be actually in a in a i wish i had kind of more time for learning myself i'm kind of but if you are in kind of a more of a learning and exploring phase i just feel like you've got this incredible this just incredible array of opportunities to you if, if i could give a if i if i could be so bold as to take this moment just talking about online events to give a shout out to our big online event which is next week the starting good virtual summer which is at www.starting.gd. It's a it's an online summit around social entrepreneurship. So we have like 35 successful social enterprise founders and thought leaders sharing over 30 hours of content uh, about their learnings along the way, practical workshops, uh, uh, panel discussions, keynotes, uh, in conversation with a lot of cool stuff. So I don't know, but there's so much more beyond that as well. Right. I think it's really exciting. I hope I and, and my part of one of the things that makes me hopeful about this time. I've always believed, you know, and I'm not I'm not claiming to be alone in this, but you know that online events have a really important role to play in allowing us to connect beyond geography and to learn more globally and, and be just a little bit more stitched together as a global community. Um, and I think it's exciting that now everyone is learning how to do online events, and everyone is willing to give online events a go. I think there's a lot of people who never would have imagined that they would attend a virtual summit as recently as a few months ago, who are, are now willing to attend a virtual summit. And a lot of organizations who never would have imagined that they would organize a virtual summit or anything like that doing so as well. And this is a great skill set. I think, I think that there's a lot of organizations learning how to convene community online, learning how to teach online, learning how to share stories online. And I think that's going to stand us in good stead, even when we can get back out to offline events as well. Mm -hmm. Agree. I mean, I, I agree. Like right now, um, even joining global events, like different different industry of different topics of events, it's an amazing opportunity for us to learn. And I also sign up for your virtual summit, so I'm oh, looking fantastic. forward. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Um, so let's see if there is any question that you want to ask. If you're in the room. Sure. 
Hey Tom, thanks for that. That was Today. that was amazing. Um, I don't know if you know, but I sit on the vi- the vibe wire board now, and actually, oh, really? you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So, I'm really close with Gavin. So about yeah, brilliant. Well, yeah, twelve months ago, he's like, "You want to come do this?" And when you're talking about how hard it is to raise money, I'm really butted in. I'm like, "It's still hard to raise money." <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a systemically hard. Is yeah. what I is what I decided. Yeah. What I realized. I didn't know at first. It's hard to tell when you have kind of a sample size of one, your own experience. I thought maybe it's hard because I suck at this. Um, but I eventually became convinced that it's hard because it's hard. Yeah. Not because it, I'm not good at it. And also because I work in advertising by day, it is mm-hmm. even more interesting to see what they waste money on. But that's a that's a different issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, on the I, I really liked your point on soft skills are sort of the hardest, and I mm-hmm. really hope you on the. Um, learning how to switch off and switch out with that sometimes i'm finding that tipping point between um leadership and management of yourself is kind of the the two things i'm fighting with do you have any advice in the terms of a bit like you i don't really get phased out so it bothers me when other people get hit hard and i'm kind of like what what do you mean you're tired like don't worry about it just keep going and like again music festivals are a great way to switch off but uh, how do you how do you inspire other people to kind of take note where they can without you know crushing them into a uh, uh, dust? Yeah, <laughs> great question. Um, I mean, it was one. It was you know I used to I was fascinated by this you know over the years of Vibewire. So I was there you know eight and a half years and would have worked with hundreds and hundreds of, of mostly volunteers. Um, and we treated our volunteers very seriously. They had job titles, and you know mm-hmm. it was kind of competitive. Like it was hard to get a, it was hard to get a serious volunteer role with us. Even we you know, interview a dozen people, and anyway. but um, but, but we, we kind of we, we treated them like you know we we expected people to to act like it was a job. So it just didn't have a financial exchange. But we, we yeah. kind of setting so setting that expectation was important. But it, it used to really fascinate me to watch kind of the people who burnt out weren't the people who were working the hardest, hardly ever. There is, yeah. it's a cliche that you need something done, give it to a busy person, but that, there's something to that. Because often busy people are, are, are kind of good at being busy, good at getting things done. And often people who are seemingly less busy are very busy worrying about the stuff they should be doing. And I think it is that key thing of being able to, to switch on or off. Like I, I would notice these people who were like perpetually worried about how much they need to get done, but seemingly never getting anything done. I just couldn't personally understand. Because I kind of, I, I'm the opposite of that. I don't worry about it and I get things done and they worried about it and didn't get things done. Um, and I, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if I ever figured out the secret that you can kind of necessarily snap someone out of that. But I think that, that you know, the, the, the trick I learned was, was, you know, treating people regardless, you know, if volunteers or not, treating them really seriously, giving them important things to do, um, giving people quite a lot of trust, but then withdrawing that trust quite quickly. That when people yeah. weren't meeting me halfway, um, you know, I would I would move on and try and find someone else uh, yeah. quite quickly. So I, I would give people important things to do. You know, no one's just fetching the coffee or whatever, but they're an intern or, or a paid staff member. Um, but then if, if you're not up for that, the sooner we figure that out and get you, and often, you know, often those people are relieved to be relieved, you know, of, of their of their duties because they were stressing out about it and not getting it done anyway. I think it's good advice. Thank you. Great. Cool. Is there anybody have any questions? Siron, you have any questions? <laughs> Anyone want to know anything about crowdfunding? 
Uh, here's good advice about crowdfunding. <laughs> yeah, I've got some advice, and I'm not sure whether to push that. There's a there's a couple of crowd ventures I'm looking at at the moment uh, through crowd venture funds, um, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a lot of money left on the table pre-COVID. So there was a lot of like certainly, and again, I'm just in Sydney, so there was a lot of money just ready to be invested, and it got slowed down by the bushfires a little bit for internal investment. Yeah. But then from externally, I knew there were a few companies who were about to set up shop here, so there's a lot of money on the table. Do you think that's going anywhere fast? Do you think people are going to slow that down too much? Or do you think they're going to rush back in and start investing that? God, I don't know. I'm not an economist or a futurist um, when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. I, I I think it's really interesting watching the impact in the in the kind of more, I guess, impact, the impact and the impact space. Um, disasters tend to be when we're at our most generous, but the dynamic tends to be people who are less affected, like people who are unaffected. Or, mm. or, or only modestly affected, supporting people who are significantly affected. COVID is kind of quite a different dynamic as disasters go. You know, the bushfires are incredibly extreme for one group of people, and then I mean, everyone dealt with smoke pollution and so on. But, and that tends to be, and then, um, whereas whereas COVID is obviously affecting everyone's sense of security about the future, and when we're really uncertain about the future, it's a, a lot less likely for people to be generous. I saw a really interesting take actually. The guy called Mark Pesci. I don't know if anyone, this is a good recommendation for anyone who's not familiar with him. He's a, he is a bit more of a future, futurist, he's a really early technology guy. He's American, but lives in Sydney these days. He's been publishing a book called The Next 100 Seconds in 100 Second Installments in, in videos and, and a podcast, essentially, that's 100 seconds at a time. And he had a really interesting one last week about time horizons for planning and how things, you know, that we almost reached this point of singularity in early March where people really couldn't plan more than half an hour ahead. And yeah. it just felt like, like things were, were changing so quickly that you literally lost confidence that you could predict what was going to happen by the afternoon. And mm. obviously that's a crippling sensation. If you feel like you don't know what the afternoon's going to bring, let alone tomorrow, there's a very natural tendency to want to like hoard and hold on to what you've had, which is where we saw, I mean, the, the hoarding in the supermarkets was always out of loan. We have a just-in-time just supply chain, so it takes very little to kind of disrupt the just-in-time model. Um, but nonetheless, that kind of dynamic where everyone was getting really fearful and worrying about, will I have toilet paper next week? It just basically still be normally take for granted. People get to worry about it. And then this point was, we've got to the point now where we most people can see about 30 days ahead. Yeah. Give or take, you know, so we can kind of plan out the next month. Yeah. You know, what are we doing? What are we doing this month? Um, how are we going to connect with our community this month or support our students this month? Or um, here, And then he thought by the end of this month, we'll probably be able to plan about to the end of the year again, give or take, like whether that's yeah. continuing lockdowns or, or opening up, we'll probably have a bit of a sense either way of how, how we feel about it and how it's going. And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be back to being able to plan a couple of years ahead. Um, so I think that will have... I think those kind of time horizons will have enormous impacts on people's willingness to invest because investment yeah. is obviously based on a future time horizon. It's foregoing an asset now in the hope of a, a greater asset later on. And so it requires a certain confidence in, in the future. So yeah, I think it would be, a, I think it's quite challenging. We were, we were working on a, a new joint venture company that we were just starting to raise money for and we've just stopped for now. There's right. just no point. Yeah. Um, seemingly, you know, we, and so we're just kind of waiting, wait and see like everyone else. Um, we know that the next 30, we're, we're confident that the next 30 days to come back to Mark's timeframes, the next 30 days, we reckon they're not going to be a good time to, to fundraise. By the end of the next 30 days, we might know whether we think the second half of the year is even viable. Good. <laughs> what the thing about it. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy times.
And um, Tafumani, I saw you switch on your camera. Do you have anything that you wanted to ask? I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Cause... All right, uh, my name is uh, Tafumani. Actually, um, uh, I kind of joined the, the, uh, the conversation uh, a bit late. I was having difficulties in joining, but um, yeah, I like the idea and um, I've been researching a lot of, uh, about you, uh, Tom. And uh, yeah. yeah, actually, um, I've, uh, we have one of our, um, it's called uh, Impact Abarare here in Zimbabwe. They are doing something, um, I think, with your organization. Had some good, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's us. I, I don't know what it's available. Yeah, exactly. And, that's um, awesome. Yeah, sure. But otherwise, I have um, I've nothing much. Cool. It's great to see you. I'm glad you came on camera. Nice to meet you. Sure. And very cool to know that things have been shared around locally where you are. Yeah. yeah. So, um, to. To wrap this up, um, like, do you have any um, suggestions? Like, what, like, where do you draw inspiration for your like personal growth for the uh, social impact business that you're in? Like, what do you? I don't know what you. Where do you get inspired? Is it like TV shows or documentaries, books? Like, do you have any suggestions of of the places yeah. that got you inspired? Actually, this is one of my funny little resilience tri- uh, tips, actually, that I didn't uh, share. So I'm big on audiobooks these days. Uh, I've always loved books, but I kind of got out, I got out, I got out of the habit of reading for about a, a decade there or so, or, or got slower. I, I read li- less and less and less as I got older and busier and more responsibilities. And, you know, so I went from reading whatever it was, 25 books a year to 12 to 6 to 4 or something. Uh, and then I discovered, and then I fell in love with podcasts, that led on to audiobooks, and now I'm like really into books again. Because um, I like to walk, as I like said, I like to get away from my, my camera and love well, my screen rather camera, hilarious. It feels like it's just a camera these days because I'm always on Zoom. Um, and I, I do listen to, you know, great books by social entrepreneurs, particularly, or just entrepreneur stories about startups. I love great, you know, startups and entrepreneur biographies and stories. But I have a particular genre that I listen to a lot. I almost always have one book of this kind on the, on the go, which is people having a really hard time, like mm-hmm. a, a proper hard time. Like I, 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 I love books on mountaineering, which are always about disasters. You know, they like a, a book with someone just getting smoothly up the hill and back down again doesn't have to make a good book. It's always like lost in a storm, stuck down in a crevice. I went through a phase where I've, I've listened to basically every book about the romantic age of exploration in Antarctica. You know, like 120 years ago, people exploring the Antarctic with bugger all equipment and so on. I went through a bit of a phase of reading a bunch of biographies of child soldiers from Sudan, like kind of bleak stuff at times. But I think it really helps me because I think, again, part of where I think people burn out is that is that life becomes hard and we lose perspective as to what it means, what what's really hard. And so when I'm feeling like, oh, everything's too hard, I like to remind myself that it's not really hard. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's stressful and I'm, I've got ambitious girls, but I, you know, I live in a really safe, prosperous country. I have a lovely family. I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, I'm very prosperous overall. And so I like to just kind of, you know, reframe my experience and go, oh, that, I know what hard looks like. Hard looks like your village being burnt down and having to walk for four days to get to the nearest refugee camp. I'm, I'm doing better than that. Um, so I don't know if I'd say that's where I get inspiration from exactly, but it is kind of part of my part of my process or whatever um, that I enjoy. So I, I love I love a good you know a, a good difficult adventure book with someone having a you know human surviving humans being resilient under under difficult circumstances. 
Um, and then a lot of, you know, for more for more timely stuff and up-to-date stuff, you know, a lot of, pod, a lot of podcasts, a lot of, a lot of good podcasts about social entrepreneurship, a couple of good ones out of Australia, Impact Boom and Humans of Purpose, um, general entrepreneurship um, podcasts like How I Built This um, is really good. I just think, you know, stories of, of entrepreneurs overcoming is, is something that I'm endlessly fascinated and inspired by. Wow, I, I really love this tip. I, I feel it's so powerful because sometimes I also fall into the travel thinking what is happening is hard. But then if I put into the perspective, I would actually realize that, oh, I, I live in Hong Kong and everything is like safe and healthy and great and it's not really that hard. So I really love yeah. and it. And it's interesting to see that is the kind of like the secret of you of being resilient is to read, always have some Part story that you will read in order to keep your perspective there. So yeah, and it makes it grateful what you do have. You know, understanding that there are others who so much less. I think it reminds you to be grateful for family, friends, the safety. You know, the yeah. basic things: beauty, natural beauty, and all of that sort of stuff. I agree. Um, I definitely will add that to my book list. Um, a friend <laughs> was actually recommending me to read um, David Goggins' "Can't Hurt Me." It's, it's, I, I, I don't know if you've read it. Yeah, I don't know if you've read it, but um, he told me it's also about like a person of like tough story, mental toughness. Um, it should also. Yeah, right now. Yeah, can't hurt me. Oh, can't hurt me only bit. David Goggins. There we go. They have it on. Uh, have it on all That's yeah. Oh yeah, he's the the Navy guy or the Air Force guy. Or something. That's right. Yeah, I've seen. I've seen that. I've seen this cover. Anyway, <laughs> thanks. <for the> <laughs> yeah. Um. If I could leave one one final book here, but she's on my mind because I'm about to interview her for the summer, which I'm really excited about. So I just, I, I re-listened to her book, just uh, finished it yesterday, The Blue Sweater by Jacqueline Novogratz. I can't recommend that highly enough. And uh, she's the founder of Acumen Fund, one of the real pioneers in impact investment and social enterprise. I'm super excited right now that I'm about to, in another hour, uh, interview her, have a chat. And I, I hope you'll all come on, you know, join the summit and, and check out that conversation next week. Just signed up. Brilliant. Cool. That's Good amazing. Man. Amazing. One more. <laughs> <laughs> cool, guys. Cool. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming and, and sharing yeah, all, the, all the things, like your story and also the tip that you've learned. Right. My pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. Have a great evening or day, wherever you are. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye, Tom. Bye.